This podcast was recorded on June 26, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sherman Show today. Uh, I have a unique guest today, uh, Mr. Don Downtown Josh Brown. Um, I'm here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And we are going to be talking to Downtown Josh Brown. So, Josh, welcome to the Sherman Show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so uh, I know you... Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) First-time caller. Yeah, uh, I know you're not very comfortable in a media forum, so we'll try to be somewhat easy on you today. I'll eke my way through this. Okay, so... What I want to start with is um, a lot of folks know you as a personality on television, uh, the internet, uh, maybe some other forums I'm not familiar with. But I think I want to start off instead of what you do on a day-to-day, what do you actually do in your spare time? Uh, Podcasts mainly. (laughs) I don't really have spare time. You know, here's the thing. I I truly love uh, the subject matter that I talk about professionally, so when I'm not doing a blog post or making a TV appearance about the markets. I'm probably reading something related to it or like, this is my hobby and my profession. So uh, people say like that's what you should strive for and it took me a long time to figure out that this is what I want to do, the way I want to do it. So I'm just, I'm working all the time but it almost never feels like work. Yeah, and you're married? I am. How does your wife feel about that? Vacation time, all that stuff? Listen, I'm I'm like a lot to, to handle so it's like, she likes me in like hour long bite sized pieces <laughs> of time. I think she likes that I that I work hard and that, that I'm, you know, available and you know but I'm not all the time on top of her and you know, uh, what are we doing today? She'll tell me what we're doing that day. I'm a willful participant. And then I go off into my own world of whatever I'm doing. It, remind, it reminds me of Larry David on yeah. Curb Your Enthusiasm. There's a scene <laughs> where he talks about, um, you know, how he can't really stand to be around other people and who would want to stand to be around him. Yeah. And so his joy in life and his pleasure is to extricate himself from day-to-day conversations because um, it's so difficult. And he has to deal with himself day in, day out. My, my favorite Curb scene is it's a throwaway it's not even related to the plot of the episode but they open one of the shows with him online in an ice cream parlor and there's a woman in front of him asking for a taste of every flavor and he says would you just take a risk already just yeah. take just you, you have to pick one you don't get to sample everything <laughs> and I, I find that so apropos for investing like yeah you have, at a certain point you can't do everything you just have to decide this is how I'm investing and um, you know very much the work that we do um, on the blogs and in the public eye is to say we have a very strong point of view about what the right way to invest is. And we've chosen yeah. it and we ask our clients to choose it. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So as an investment advisor, as a fiduciary, as someone who's trying to get people to be long-term investors, uh, what do you find is the biggest hurdle to that? Well, it's easy to be a long-term investor now because markets are a one-way bet. <laughs> you're, you're saying they're going up all the time. Yeah, That's right, right. So everyone's a long-term right. investor. Um, 
I, I've been through a few cycles. I actually, the bulk of my career was spent in between the dot-com blow-up and um, the great financial crisis. Like, that was my formative years, was during a secular bear market that started in March of 2000 and didn't end until May 2013. Yep. And I think we're in a secular bowl. I mean, time will tell. Right. be wrong. But, um, so most of my career was spent um, in a secular bear. And... So it's an adjustment even for me to say, like, you know, not every three-year good period for stocks is going to have to end in disaster. This could run on longer. Yeah. So, uh, look, I think, um, I think every, if you do an RTQ with an investor, if you do a um, risk tolerance questionnaire with an investor on a day where the market is down, they'll tell you, oh, no, I don't, I don't want a lot of risk. If you do one after a three-month run of nothing but upside, it'll be the opposite. Oh, I'm fine with risk. Um, so I think that goes for professionals as well. I think it's like just this 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 recency bias that we all have. Well, so, you mentioned that too, and biases and behavioral, and we love the behavioral side. And yeah. I always find it interesting on the you talk about investment professionals even owning it. And so when we talk to older advisors who started in the late seventies, early eighties, they think, "Oh my gosh, inflation's around the corner. Oh, bonds are horrible. They have to mean revert to these higher levels." Um, I also have colleagues that started in the mid nineties um, that love equities more than other folks. I started, I think, around the same time as you. I started in the business in two thousand one. And I said, well, that's probably natural why I work more for a fixed income-oriented firm, right? So there, there, there tends to be this inquiry. Everyone is a product of their environment. Yeah. And actually, we looked at the list of signatories to that 2010 letter to the Fed. It was like 100 very prominent economists and investors. And a lot of them, their formative years were in the 70s. Right. So they were terrified of um, hyperinflation or stagflation or... You know, and, and obviously it didn't come to pass, but yeah. yeah, everyone is a product of what they, so now get really scared. Right. Imagine the people who started investing in 2009, 2010. That's right. Yeah. right. Uh, it's inconceivable to them. I mean, they know, uh, they know empirically that it happens, but it's inconceivable to them that you could have a five-year period without positive returns. Right. That's the whole buy the dip mentality. They we know, we know, know it's the, possible, yeah. but they haven't lived it. Right. If you haven't lived it, it's probably different. Right. Well, I think that's part of the risk tolerance idea, too, is that you see not only the investor side, the, you know, uh, the professionals having these biases, but the investors do, too. I mean, imagine coming to the world in 2007, and that's your entry point into financial markets. Right. Um, it's probably tough to be allocated heavily to equities, right? You might actually – so, so we, we, did a, we did a thing on this on the blogs. Uh, Michael Batten, my director of research – you might actually be cursed forever um, as a result of starting in the business in a year like 2007. That might follow you forever in terms of the way you allocate and the way you um, overemphasize the possibility of a, of a drastic event right. um, and how you're actually placing your chips on the board. That could be like a really bad situation forever. Well, there's well, there's the asymmetry between the fear and the greed, right? And I think I read from one of your books, you know, that um, the the fear side sells more in the media than the greed side, sure. and we know that from investors from the standpoint of there's the asymmetric feeling about it. It takes you know something like three to four times the upside um, per unit of downside risk. Yes, and then and then even even like taking that a step further, pessimism sounds so much smarter than optimism. Optimism always sounds dopey. Yeah, like yeah. it's very hard to do some people can do it I think Jeremy Siegel does a really nice job mm -hmm. at 
um, optimism, but couched in facts and data. Um, but to just come out and say, blue skies, um, you, you will never sound as erudite and as sophisticated as someone who paints this picture of all the things that could possibly go wrong. That's that's uh, much more intellectually seductive yeah. to people. Well, I think, too, maybe we just need to listen to the Sesame Street theme tune a little bit more, the, the sunny skies, right, sweeping the clouds away. Yes. I'm uh, not going to sing it, of course. that's when the market tops. When we start <laughs> opening up uh, the <laughs> broadcast Sesame Street. But, no, I, I, I agree with, I agree with yeah. uh, broadly what you're saying. So our job with investors is to say we really don't care what you think your risk tolerance is. Um, yeah, we'll do the questionnaire and we'll have the conversation. I think the conversation's good. We use Whiskalize, which is a fintech company. Uh, they provide a software that allows us to quantify an investor's self-assessment of their risk tolerance, meaning they'll go through this mathematical question and answer, would you be comfortable with 10% more downside potential if it led to 14% more upside potential? And we will take them through that not because we think it answers the asset allocation question, uh, which I'll get to in a second, but because it's a good way to start off a conversation with the idea that, hey, there is going to be downside. That's the number one thing that we cannot eliminate from the investing process. Um, And number two, now we have a sense of, generally, how you feel about the risk-reward trade-off. And then we say, okay, well, let's throw that out because we're going to do a financial plan and we're going to tell you how much risk you need to take in order to match your future liabilities with your present assets and how you might feel about risk today, next week, take the questionnaire six months from now, it's very squishy. It's going to change with what the headlines in the newspaper are, what your last 401k statement said. Those are the things that are going to be variables to how you answer an RTQ. So we don't really care that much, frankly, about what you think your risk are. Tell us what you want to do with your money. And we're going to tell you, this is the amount of risk that you have to accept. This is a very different process than the typical Wall Street sales process, which is that, hey, guess what? You can have the upside and we're going to limit your risk. You can have all of these things. I'm not going to suggest that we're the first firm to tell people, no, actually, that's all a lie, and you have to have downside, but there's an intelligent way to take it. And, you know, that, like that, I feel like that's my life's work is to just get people comfortable with this idea that there are going to be drawdowns, and hey, if you need to call me up and yell at me, you can do that. That's what I'm here for. Right. But no matter what, if you want what the market offers on the upside, we can't break that link. So let me just ask one more on that because it sounds like to me the way you're describing it is you're going to the synthesis of you know the personality side, but you're really asking them what are your goals. It's not it's not financial returns, well, what but what are the goals? Right? right. What else are we investing for? Because if you don't tell me what you're using the money for, and more importantly, when, then how do I know how do you think about the interplay between sequence of returns between um, what are, you know? In, in the next ten year period, we might be investing for your children's college education, which is what I'm doing for mine. Um, and then things change. All right, you've gotten them through school, but you're still working. So now you're still accumulating assets. What are those for? Obviously retirement. But maybe you don't need quite all of those assets for retirement, and some of them will be left to future generations. Or maybe there's a charity you want to fund. If I don't know where the money's going. 
And I don't also incorporate things like an expected inflation rate. What state do you live in so I can figure out what your taxes are? Yeah. What's your health situation in your family? I mean, I have all CFPs doing this work. This isn't, this isn't uh, you know, me uh, chin scratching. We will not discuss stocks and bonds with an investor until we know exactly, or to the best of our ability, I should say, what they think they want to do with their money, allowing for the fact, by the way, that that could change. Also allowing for the fact that when we sit with a husband and wife, we might not get the same answer from both of them. For, for one, it's a vacation home. For the other, it's private school. And we don't know necessarily which is going to win, but we're not marriage mediators. So we've got to have all these contingencies. And then once we've done all of that work, only at that point, will we say, we'll sit down internally and say, okay, you know, we've met with the Sherman family. We have a pretty good sense of when they'll need the money, how much more they might put in, um, what might make them suddenly pull out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is what we think is the right portfolio. This mix of strategies is what we think will get them there. And at that point, we'll talk about, you know, do you want to do international mid cap or small cap? Yeah. Or do you want to use double line for this? Or do you want to use State Street for that? We will get to that point at the appropriate time. I think a lot of people in our industry want to lead with the asset management because it's sexy. It's more yeah. fun to talk about. That's yeah. why I got in the business. I thought it was sexy. sexy yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm not a CFP, so I want I want to talk about <laughs> the asset management. That's right. the part that I'm fascinated with. Um, but I've got nine client-facing advisors, I think seven of whom are uh, certified financial planners. The other two are in the process of getting that designation. We want them to have that real conversation first before we come to the table with funds and ETFs. And that's a tough conversation to have, right? Because you're getting intimate knowledge of your your potential clients or your existing clients. And a lot of times the trust hasn't been built yet. And you're trying to get this information that's critical for their future success. You nailed it. And here's what's so cool about our model. We are only talking to people who are reading our stuff for the most part. So Barry's been blogging since 1998. Um, he actually started when it was like GeoCities, and it wasn't called blogging. Right. And you would take an hour to write a post. And it was the RSS post. feed still, which no one like, no one really knows that technology. You needed right? a little That's bit it. of HTML. Like if you wanted italics in your blog post. You, you, need, the, you need the back eye. Yeah, right. So that's how long VR uh, has been doing yeah. this. But So I'm nine years. Uh, Michael Batnick's three or four years. Ben Carlson's three or four years. Um We've got this, this great relationship with our readers and this trust, to your point, that's been built up over years. And as a result, when they come to us, it's not a cold meeting where they don't know anything about our investment philosophy. Oftentimes, it's guys I've been waiting for the right time that I, I knew I would need help. I'm about to retire or unfortunately, my, you know, my spouse just got ill. Now is when I need someone and I've been reading you and I feel like I you feel like, like you've already built you, that connection, though, yeah, right? I know you personally, but I feel like I know what you believe in about asset management and wealth management and markets and, and economics. And maybe that shortens that trust-building period of time so that we can start doing effective work with a household, like, immediately. 
And that, to me, is really cool. Well, what I like about someone they feel like they know you is, is really cool. Yeah, what I like about that is I always felt that was what helped make us successful is obviously being stewards of capital, focusing risk management, trying to achieve goals for folks, uh, and giving them a, a way of doing it and outsourcing to folks like yourself. Sure. But I've always found it what sells the best is not product sells. It's no. intellectual capital. It sounds like to me that's the way you've built this up is that you, you build this trust. You build this thing of being honest, being candid, not just being um, another – I don't want to say it's a shill out there, but more the idea of people feel that they can trust you because you yeah. will buck the trend. This is the moment that we're in right now, by the way, because financial services were always sold on the basis of the reputation of the firm. And it's not that that's not important anymore. It's that personality. So like social media is a great example. People don't follow brands, right? They follow people. Right. This is the Kardashian thing. <laughs> uh, not that I'm drawing a comparison between any of us and Kim <laughs> or Chloe, my favorite. Um, <laughs> but but people follow people. They don't follow brands. And I I didn't look. I'm pretty sure at Truth Gunlock has more followers than at D Line Cap. Yeah, that's probably yeah. fair. Okay. Yeah. And he's been tweeting for two weeks or something? Yeah. 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 Like people, so to your point, the intellectual capital, but also beyond that, the personality. Mm-hmm. Do I like this person? Do I trust this person? Um, people in this election didn't care about Democrat, Republican. They barely can tell the difference between the two anymore. It's which corporation right. owns which. Right. Donald Trump, they know. Right. Now, let's not go there. But the point is, he had almost 100% name recognition with the voter base. Mm-hmm. He may have a violently negative reaction from a portion, yep. but it didn't matter. You have to spend a certain amount of money as a politician to be in a national contest to get that name brand recognition. What if you already start with it? Sure. Guess right. who's going to run next time? Well, Howard I s- Schultz, Bob Iger, <laughs> uh, Oprah might throw her hat in. Oprah, Oprah has brought, she has a brand recognition. So, so that is the, that's the new game. That's the new game. So you're 100% right. Like the, the, um, the intellectual capital and then to take it a step further, the, the face of it. Um, and that means more than what used to mean a lot, which was we're Merrill Lynch. Yeah. We're, we're Smith Barney. We're... We're the white shoe firm that all, that can yeah. do no wrong. But also I think people uh, – the image, images were tarnished in the last kind of crisis as well where yeah. you found that they – you know, it's always been known but that these big-name big, big name entities are on both sides of trades or yeah. they may not be doing always the best well, thing in terms of – They were all bank, They were all effectively insolvent. Right. But let me get this straight. You needed a $10 billion loan from the government but you want to manage my money? Yeah. What are you, high? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> And the advisors in those firms responded to that yeah. because you saw them go independent right. in very large numbers. Well, that's what we see. So. The big movement, especially in our client base, has been on this registered investment advisor. And what we've seen is that you know they, they didn't like some of the things going on in the bigger firms. Or they want to run their own business, and they were entrepreneurial. So they didn't want their value proposition in the eyes of their clients tied to the existence of one firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we won't name any. Right. Some, some of them had things they were doing with taxes that yeah. weren't so right. great. Right. So it's yeah. like the whole spectrum. So you said this is, people say, all right, you know what? There's a mountain near me or a lake. I could just name it some, you know, um, Brown Lake Capital yeah. or, you know. Is there a Brown Lake too? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? Maybe in the future. Uh, well, you the know, time goes all yeah. pick like Greek gods. Right. The RIAs all pick rivers and streams, but it doesn't matter. It's like I can put my own shingle, yeah, right. spruce, spruce, spruce capital, whatever right. it is. But it, but it works because it's the, the brand is not almost beside the fact. It's the people. Right. 
It's like, Why? Hey, I'm your guy. I used to be at this big firm. Now I have the backing of big firms. I have Schwab or TD or Persian or Fidelity behind me. That's where your money goes. And I'm the guy giving you the advice. Right. And I'm using technology to replicate the big firm experience so that there's no aspect of what I used to be able to do that I can't now do. The only difference is it's me you're investing with. It's not global brand, you know, whatever. Well, in some cases, there's more open architecture, too. You get more freedom. You get the ability to do the things that you think are in the best interest of the client. This is a very big thing to be able to plug in your own um, tools, your own funds that you want to use, not be beholden to somebody's shelf space program. And it's hard to see this going the other way. Um, frankly, I can't even imagine it. I mean, it's almost interesting, too. I mean, the fact that um, f- for your blog, or maybe it's the Twitter, uh, I'm a Luddite. Yeah, it's hard for me to distinguish the two sometimes. But, uh, I mean, I was looking at your at your Twitter account. You have almost 740,000 followers. It's, it's actually 752. Oh, so in the last you've... It's an uptrend. Uh, it's a bull market <laughs> in Josh Brown's Twitter. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm the fang of Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, putting out your views out there, and it's... On markets, on whatever you, know, you blog about, you start to gain the trust of your potential clients or your existing clients. They know how you think. They know the way that you potentially will will react to certain situations. But it just seems like in, I don't know if it's our side of the table, our industry in the sense that uh, it, it's almost different in the sense that you think that back in the day, companies would almost want to dissuade you from putting your intellectual capital out there, putting your brand out well, there. They have firm. to. They have to because – if you have a firm with um, 20,000 employees, theoretically, the viewpoints of those employees will run the entire spectrum. Um, That's right. And especially, there will be geographic differences in what's acceptable uh, in one place versus... So Compliance a, issues. A friend, of mine, a friend of mine was running the social media program for one of the big wirehouse brokerage firms. I'm not going to tell you which one. Um, doesn't matter. So her job was essentially to get these people who have been hidden behind closed doors, basically, get them out there. This is 2010 or 2011, so very early in social media. And so she was like relaying all these crazy things. One of the things was LinkedIn. So you would think this is so innocuous, so innocent. They had this firm-wide push for every one of their advisors to create a LinkedIn page, um, which is just, here's who I am, blah, 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 and then upload a, an avatar photo. So they had, a, they had a, a, a gentleman from Texas who uploads a photo. He's holding a hunting rifle to a deer's head. <laughs> and so she gets, a, she gets pinged by someone. And, you know, she says, like, imagine we have thousands and thousands of advisors and we have to make sure every one of them just uploading an avatar. Because if that comes out, the newspaper article is not financial advisor <laughs> Um, holds gun to Deer's head and yeah. it's the name of the firm in the headline which I still won't say but like that's her risk that's so right. now that's like one tiny example of the myriad things that could go wrong when you allow your people to represent you in public instead of the very rehearsed very choreographed this is our publicist everything goes through her blah 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 so it's a challenge Right, and I don't have thirty thousand people to worry about. I have like six or seven that are in the public eye, um, but it helps that everyone that works in the firm came to us because they've been reading what we think, and they they're philosophically on the same page. 
So we don't have like someone in the firm that's like a renegade and thinks there's a better way to invest than what we're doing mm-hmm. because of the way we built this uh, organically. But if they are, you'd probably listen to them. Fired, so. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. That's even better. Uh, read the blog. We, yeah. are not a, we are not a democracy. Okay. Uh, uh, kind of like the Fed, right? Uh, there's a, there is a leader, right? We're not quite North yeah. Korea, but okay. we, we have a view. And if you work at the firm, it's, I think, because you believe in the view. And if you don't, there are a lot of other places that you can go. So... Tell me the story of the Ritholtz Brown experience. How did you guys meet up? How did you start this thing? What, what was the what was the quintessential moment to say this is a thing we need to do? So we met on Tinder. Okay, nice. Um, you both swiped the correct direction. Barbara, don't laugh. Everything pick, gets picked up on these mics. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, all right. So actually, we met in California. Um, okay. I, uh, which is why you were using Tinder because you yeah, were in another state. Jobs. Okay. Um, Shout out to my wife. What's up? So <laughs> I I uh, was at a really bad place in my career. I was a retail broker who had just come through the crisis. It's 2010, and I know I'm getting out. I say, like, all the work I've been doing for clients has not really been helpful. I'm selling people investments. I don't want to do that. I want to give advice. So I... When you were a broker, were you a transaction broker? Yeah. Oh, all right. 100%. Okay. We were selling right. the hot stock of the week. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what we were doing, um, which used to be a normal thing. But right. it just... It outlived its usefulness, and I got the memo very late. So I stuck with it five years after everyone else stopped. Anyway, long story short, I know I'm leaving my firm, and at the same time, I had this new blog that I've started. And through the blog, Barry and I had kind of become aware of each other. I was very aware of him. He was my hero. Okay. He had a little bit become aware of me. We ended up meeting at a um, fintech kind of blogging conference in um, San Diego, and we hit it off. Within 45 minutes, we were already planning how could we work together. Um, and Barry taught me, like, more, even before I had met him, just reading him through the financial crisis, which he had nailed, by the mm-hmm. way, yep. probably saved my career because I was listening to him instead of everyone else. And everyone else was insane. And he was the only person very publicly saying, listen, I don't want the market to go down. I don't want housing to collapse, but tell me if you think this is sustainable. And he would just very simply post a chart of income growth versus home price growth nationally. And it was the most absurd chart you've ever seen. That's right. He said, so either everyone's about to double their salary next year, um, or this is the biggest uh, you know, standard deviation event like you could possibly imagine in prices and it's about to come the other way. Or as they said at the time, they're not making any more land. Yeah, well, that was, that was great. Right. So, right, we're just building 200-story towers now. That's right. So, but so, so, like, Barry, like, was telling the truth and I was reading the stuff and I think he saved me and so when I got to meet him, we were talking about how... Now, here's what's interesting. Barry's not a financial advisor. Barry spent his whole career as a chief strategist, mm-hmm. mostly at broker-dealers, frankly. Um... The RIA I went joined him at was the first RIA he had ever worked at. So Barry didn't have experience talking to clients directly. Barry was always advising advisors, yeah. right? He's a big picture Which, guy. Can you imagine and how frustrating that is? Right. Like right. a room full of brokers, yeah. guys, here's what I think you should do. And of course, no one does it because <laughs> there's not a commission tied to right. this. Right. That's right. Um, right. Yeah, I think, I think everyone should hold on to their apple. Right. Barry, thanks for that call on Apple. We made three points in it. <laughs> right. The stock was 600 points. Right. So, so it was very frustrating for him, and it was very frustrating for me. So we were able to hook up and do things the, the, the Ritholtz way. He's like, man, if, if I were managing money directly for clients, I would give them this advice, I would make them stick to it. And I said, well, you're in luck. 
because um, I am an advisor, and and I, you know, I do have this ability to convey this advice to people, and let's let's see if we can build something. And it was not a struggle from there; it took off like a like a bottle rocket. Thank God. Yeah. Well, I, I, do, I do recall uh, how I first follow it, first started following it because my boss at the time was saying, there's these new things called blogs out here. Yeah. And so we should be following the blogs to understand what it is. And I remember Google Reader, yeah. you know, that was the nice aggregator at the time. And so what I clicked on was other things. I was in it, derivatives. So I got Barry. Big picture. It said derivatives in it. So he was the king of the, the key word to at least get me to follow him originally. And so um, it's been an extension. What happened to you in your life that derivatives became like the first thing you wanted to search for? It, it wasn't necessarily to search for. It was just um, I, I, it was under finance. At the time, there wasn't a lot of areas. Um, so unfortunately, I'm, I'm like, a mathematician. reader is like Kardashian first. Right. Then well, Derek Jeter. Then well, <laughs> well, we worked in a bigger organization. Organization where we were afraid of you know what what was being pulled up there and um, you know right, being so stopped. So you know. you're searching for derivatives late night. Yeah, Saturday it's night. Pro- it's probably about 11 p.m. on a Saturday. This is before Tinder, of course. You know what am I doing out there? Is I'm, I'm looking for so I found Barry and uh, and ner- very nerdy side. I, I like to calculate risk guys yeah, yeah. too. You know um, with Tanta, you know how she was a great uh, nailed Amazing nailed the mor- mortgage Bill side. Bill yeah. McBride. Yeah, Bill McBride is awesome. still phenomenal, and you know a good shout out to Tanta and rest in peace. Yep. Uh, to her but what I found with it was that this was a new mechanism yes and this is before clickbait right. right I mean you got you got the the whole story you got it all in there you could consolidate it and all of a sudden that became a, a good way of distilling some of the you know kind of uh, sell side research at the time that wasn't fruitful right okay. wasn't good in terms of strategy thinking the strategists were pushing a lot of the products well, yeah, it, was, it was written it was very effective at what its job was to do which was to sell products <laughs> But that's not necessarily useful to the consumer. Right. Why did Google shut down Google Reader? Don't you have an in there? Feedly, Feedly is better, though. Feedly is better. Okay. I, I, I gave up on the blog. Feedly Premium is, really? is hot. Yeah. So what happened is at one point I got so tired of not having it. The Feedly apps weren't working well on the phone. For, uh, this is you know a few years back. And so I broke down and joined Twitter. And the reason for Twitter, and I'm a voyeur. I have uh, zero followers. I'm not someone out there posting. Uh, you had like one. Like, yeah, and you're like, who is this person? Yeah, right. You know, uh, well, actually, I do have a few, and they're, they're, some of them are questionable. I don't think they know who I am. I think it's got to be a bot somewhere. <laughs> right. No, I mean, they're not hacking my account, I don't think, yeah. except that I do get ads from them every once in a while. Um, but all this being said is that it's the media has changed, but and so is the message. But where do you think we go? You talk about fintech helping your business. Uh, you talk about you know the ability to have open architecture. What do you see is kind of the new trend in what you do from an investment advisor standpoint? So we're simultaneously excited and discouraged by fintech because we're using a ton of software and we love our providers, but it's just it seems like it's too slow to really keep up with everything we can imagine it should be doing. Like I, the automated advisor thing is awesome. Like I think it's gonna be really powerful for advisors like us mm-hmm. to scale up and take on clients that we ordinarily would not be able to. Yeah, because of the small size or, yeah. or just, uh, like, so here's they the, don't need to be high touch either. No, perhaps. They, it's not necessary, it's overkill to, it's overkill to do a four hour planning session with someone who's 28 years old. They don't. 
They don't even know who they're going to be dating next week. What, no what do they need that level of wealth management for? I saw your post recently about the, the elevated levels of cash in these wirehouses. Yeah. And just, I mean, so that, that, is, that is very that's disgusting. A, that's yeah. a problem that could be solved. So in other words, like, um, the ability to... So, all right, so right now, uh, I'll get an email. Hey, Josh, I've been reading your blog. I really like it. And um, I, I don't qualify for your, your wealth management. I only have $30,000. I'm just getting started. Um, or I went through a divorce. I'm rebuilding. Right. And I'd love to, like I used to say, I used to say to those people, dude, sorry, uh, like call Schwab or something. And they're not gonna, you know, they might call Schwab, but more likely, they're gonna run into like the country club broker who sells them a private REIT, um, or somebody sells them an insurance product masquerading as an investment product. Like, oh, I ended up with annuities because a quality wealth manager wouldn't talk to me. So it's not that there aren't solutions for them. It's that it's like either full-service advisor that's only looking for households a million dollars and up, or second-tier broker-dealers, or very, very, very Spartan do-it-yourself option at Vanguard. Like, I feel like those are the choices. So I like that I can enter that arena with a better option instead of telling the person, good luck, you know, go to your brother-in-law. You feel like you're actually able to, <laughs> able to help solve a problem. Say, listen, you're, you may not be ready for full-blown wealth management. Full-blown. Make it sound <laughs> You may not be ready right. for the full suite of our the, services. The, the full-blown Ritholtz wealth management right, uh, sure. offering, right? But you may not be Is that going to be a ride at some point, like in Las Vegas? Or <laughs> yeah, at Barryland. <laughs> or Barryland. So, so but, but click this link. It's going to take you through an automated process where we can suggest a portfolio to you. And by the way, it'll be rebalanced for you. You don't have to go in there and do that. And we're going to give you some content on a monthly basis, just letting you know our thoughts and feelings about what's going on. So you're going to get a little bit of the riddles touch. You're not going to have to sit in my wood panel conference room and have quarterly meetings with me. We're not going to call your tax person. and It's not necessary at this stage in the game. But you're getting our portfolios. We are going to do the trades when they need to be done. Uh, we are going to be tax and cost efficient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's awesome. Now, that's the good side. The bad side is none of this stuff is ready for prime time. Right. It's well, it's, it's tough with the one-size-fits-all so far. Um, they're trying. They're trying, There's yeah. 10 different software providers. Everyone's trying to come out with a, a great version. Undoubtedly, they will. So for me, I'm like, let's go. I want to go right now. You know, I want to open a million accounts right now and save a million people. We just, we don't have that capability. Let me give you one last question in the interest of time if people aren't really fast-forwarding this significantly at this stage. Um, Burton McKeel came out all of a sudden. All of a sudden, smart beta is okay. I can't believe it. Yeah, right. It happens to coincide with a smart beta launch at Wellfront. Yeah. Is it shocking? Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's just like one of those weird coincidences it's, it's, in life. It's just a contemporaneous uh, correlation, right? There's nothing, uh, there's no cause and effect, huh? It's like rain yeah. on your wedding day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's ironic. <laughs> anyway, by the definition of the Yo, word, yeah. Shout out to Burton Malkiel, yeah. though. Yeah. That's one of the gods yeah. right there. Oh, I, I, you said wonky derivatives guy. I, I've obviously Yo, read. Malkiel called the crash of 29. Yeah. He's yeah. the yeah. only one. Right. Um, speaking of Yo, I know you're, uh, you're a big hip-hop guy. Right, I see that out there and there, and um, you know Sam and I listen to a little bit here and there. Yeah, and we're not going to get east west here. We're no. not going to do that. Well, growing up in Compton, yeah. like yeah. I did, yeah. you know, I had those kind of formative influences and big yeah. stuff. This is before all the people that just only know K dot. You know the original ones from Compton, then, right? No okay, so uh, you, you mentioned you're going to have me freestyle. 
Oh, I do. We do you need beats, or can you just do it a cappella? <laughs> yeah. So, what I wanted to ask is that you hit on something about Trump and brand recognition. Why do you think Trump has been referenced in more hip hop songs than any other politician well, out there? Shorthand for um, ostentatious wealth. Okay, um, but it's not always a good reference. Like Raekwon um, referenced him in, I think, incarcerated Scarfaces. He said. You're rolling like Trump. You'll get your meat lumped. Yep. Like it's not necessarily <laughs> too fl- flossing too hard. Right. Flossing too hard. Um, Rockefeller gets referenced maybe more than Trump in terms of like outrageous fortune. Right. Um, you don't see a lot of these guys comparing themselves to tech billionaires just yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I haven't heard any references to Zuckerberg Bill, Bill, at the end of Bill Gates, yeah. Bill Gates did. The 90s. It was really a Buffett one either. I think there may be one. I can't pull it off the top of my head. But I, I can't feel like think of anyone comparing themselves to Buffett. Right. Um, He's but, too low-key. Yeah, but Trump is like shorthand for like somebody driving like a, a, a gold car down the street or yeah. building... You know, like a, a marble, whatever. You know, like that, gold that, car on gold Dayton's, and can't can't put for the gas so in it. Right? Said about Trump, it's like it's a little mean, but Trump is like what a poor person's conception of a rich person is. Like, a, like, like that's like why, why he's so popular with people, um, people who think they're about to become a millionaire mm-hmm. any day now. Yeah. Like they look at him and they're like, oh yeah, that's that's how I'd be rolling. Okay. You know? Yeah, and this is obviously pre-presidential, so you know, uh, perhaps perhaps the image will change uh, as he becomes more presidential. I hope. You yeah. know, I, listen, yeah. I, I I'm not affiliated with either party, right. and uh, so I, I don't like stump for any candidate. We'll see what right. happens. Right. I, I'm very I'm very. Uh, nonchalant about politics. Yeah, we try to do the same thing because um, it's important because you don't want to be polarizing and secondly, you yeah, don't want to get wet to one side. Yeah, uh, you I'll, know? Give you, I'll give you a better reason. Yeah. And what's the point? Because you're not changing anyone's mind. All you're doing is getting the people that already agree with you to nod and the people who disagree with you to hate you more than they otherwise would. So yeah. it's like, you know, we can talk about policies, but it's, it's, the it's a total go nowhere. Right. Right. So. right, fair enough. So, Sam, you got anything else before we go on to your favorite section of the show? No, I think it's time. I think it's time for Sherman Says. So. Why don't you give Josh the rules, All right. and uh, we'll start the uh, the polygraphic test. Okay. So what we're doing here is I'm going to list a I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and we're going to alternate between the two of you. And you give the uh, one-word answer, the first thing that pops up in your mind. Okay, let's go. Cash for Sherman. <laughs> Wu-Tang. <laughs> Euphoria. Uh, bubble. Business cycle. Long. Mainstream media. Josh Brown. Productivity. Consistent. Yield curve. Flat. Chicken and waffles. Had my first one yes, uh, yesterday. Roscoe is the correct answer. Roscoe's. Roscoe's. Were you really from Comp? <laughs> Expansion. Uh, waistline. Plan B. <laughs> I'm going to get <laughs> the alternative. <laughs> East Coast, West Coast. Uh, big. All right. Well, thanks, Josh. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Listen to the Sherman hey, Show. Do I win? I got a car. You got a car parked outside for me. Uh, you get a chicken dinner from Roscoe's. Uh, winner, winner, yeah. chicken dinner. <laughs> yeah. So again, that was our, our our guest today, downtown Josh Brown. Uh, thanks again for turning to the Sherman Show here with Sam Lau.
Thank you. And don't forget, uh, you can rate us on the internet and give us your feedback at info at doubleline.com if you want to uh, give us any insightful comments, uh, more hate mail than we already receive, or anything else you find pertinent. So again, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, um, uh, Google Play, and I'm hearing the best way to listen to these podcasts is Overcast. So you can speed us up and dial us the down. Overcast app, yes, I highly recommend. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks again. presentation represents Doubleline's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of Doubleline. Doubleline has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Doubleline, please contact media at Doubleline.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, Double-Line Capital.